guys, welcome to the 17th episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I interviewed Charlie Weingroff. Charlie is a strength and conditioning coach and physical therapist. And he's also well known for his DVD, Training Equals Rehab, Rehab Equals Training. On this episode, me and Charlie discussed many things, including why he called his DVD, Training Equals Rehab. What kind of message he was trying to convey with that title. We also discussed the FMS and why some people criticize the FMS. We also discussed his new DVD with Joel Jameson and Patrick Ward, Strength and Motion. We also discussed dynamic new muscle stabilization, breathing and the autonomic nervous system and many more other topics. Now I will say something guys, the audio with this interview with Charlie skipped in and out a bit uh, here and there, particularly in the last 20 minutes and I do apologize. Nobody was more frustrated with this than me. But I think for the most part you can still make out what Charlie's saying and if there's anything you're not too clear on and, and you want to get confirmation just you can send me an email and uh, I will I'll clear up any anything that you're having trouble making out but as with all the interviews up until now it was of course a very informative interview and I hope you guys really enjoy it okay uh, Mr. Charlie Weingroff as with all my guests who've been on the show so far it's, it's an honour to have you on the show just for anyone listening who's not too familiar with your background which won't be too many people I imagine just fill us in much for having me, Robbie. I am a, a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach, and, uh, and I've had uh, I've had more than a more than a couple cool jobs. And uh, as far as working as a strength and conditioning coach in the NBA, and uh, and as well as uh, Marine Corps Special Operations uh, here in America, and right now I am working in private facilities in uh, New York City and in New Jersey as well as doing quite a bit of work for the Nike Spark program. Just with regards to Nike, Charlie, how, how did that come about? Hey, everybody wants to hear about Nike, huh? It, it, seems, <laughs> to be this, it seems to be this mysterious program that nobody knows, uh, nobody knows anything about. Well, uh, uh, obviously without uh, with any NDAs, of which there is quite a bit, basically uh, the Nike Spark division has uh, uh, a performance division headed um, by a, a fantastic coach named Paul Winsper, who many uh, uh, folks out there in the premiership who will probably recall as far as uh, being the, uh, the fitness director at, uh, at Newcastle several years ago before moving <coughs> excuse me, to to Toronto FC uh, uh, several years ago, when uh, when they picked up their program in the MLS, and and right now the the Nike Spark program is really uh, there, there's there's a very very long term vision here, but right now we're really interested in collecting data in terms of finding what makes the best athletes in the world tick, and what are the positive data points of what is successful for a great athlete. Right now, we're primarily looking at, at the professional ranks in terms of some of the teams that we're working with and some of the, the, the Nike-sponsored athletes in our, in our pro camps, and then eventually be able to scale this down, if necessary, uh, to be able to teach this and to be able to share this. But one thing that is really exciting about the Nike program is that we are not doing programming. We're doing principles. And let's say if Robbie Bork is somebody who's involved in the Nike Spark Trainer Network, uh, Robbie Bork doesn't have to do it the way uh, Keith and Paul do it in Portland, uh, but but we expect Robbie to you know, to be on the team as far as principles, and we're teaching the principles of how to evaluate and assess and analyze uh, movement, uh, the preparedness, uh, in instantaneous levels of preparedness on a daily basis, and the sensory systems. And if basically if there is a measure of human performance that can impact the, uh, the an athlete's ability to perform. We're going to measure it. We're going to see if it's mo if it's able to be modulated, and then we're going to change it. and And let's see where these positive data points come out in success of general measures, but also specific measures, because everything that we do is meant to to win to win games on the field or pitch or or the court. So that's uh, yeah, that's a very vague kind of description of where we're going with it. But obviously, um, as we I think we're pretty much going to be entering year three. Uh, we're, we're really in a, in a data gathering uh, uh, point and as far as developing uh, methodology and, and it's, it's very exciting to, to, to have a, a group of individuals from across the world that are just you know, very egoless mm -hmm. and yet being able to complement each other's 
specialties. It's it's just very very exciting. Yeah, it sounds it sounds unbelievable. It sounds sounds like it's just it's really it's really going to bring everything to a next level. So it sounds incredible. Well, I, I tell you, I don't know anywhere any team, any organization that is doing anything like this. Mm. Uh, the, the, the obviously with Paul's experience and in, in terms of these large staff that you guys have in the premierships, that's um, close, but but. Uh, there's not, there's certainly nothing in North America that's any, any, any. No one's even close to to doing this in terms of not only the backing, but the, just getting the horses. Like the amount of folks that we have is just staggering. When you see some of the names that are just bouncing ideas off of each other in a room, uh, it's just so. It's it's just it's just like a kid in a in a candy store in those in those terms. But more importantly, we're not trying to say, okay, here's how you're supposed to do this training session. Here's how you're supposed to think. Here's the, here's the backdrop to have this elite type of programming, and then you fill it in based on your logistics. And if you can be fantasy land and, and be very uh, um, you know close to what you know the big time professional sports teams are doing, then then at least you'll be doing it not because they're doing it, but because we have data that what does the science tell us that this is what works. Charlie, can you tell us? What? Why you t- you called your first DVD training equals rehab? What were you trying to convey with that message? Well, it was really just that, and uh, it's it's the the DVT has really turned into um, almost a, a brand, uh, if you will, for me. And, yeah, and yeah. It's it's been an amazing uh, amazing ride over the last several years. But really, when when you ask me my background, and I say I'm a physical therapist and a strength and conditioning coach, not only based on how I think, but really where my career. Uh, began and has taken me, I consider myself really a strength and conditioning coach that knows how to deal with pain and serious dysfunction. And I'll probably try to um, maybe rephrase some of the, the, the verbiage of really how I feel when we do the second DVD over the next several months. But really, I think everything, regardless of where you sit on, a, on, the, on the human performance continuum, whether you're really on the left as a healthcare professional or, or a technical coach on the right, the goal is always strength and conditioning. That doesn't mean strength and conditioning is more important than rehab, but that's the goal. The only reason to do rehab is so you can do your strength and conditioning in whatever form that may be in terms of somebody who doesn't even work out. The goal is general preparation, general skills. And what, what, I, what I really believe in and what I was trying to convey was that there's absolutely no reason to not be able to think that people can't use what are traditionally rehab interventions at the same time using strength and conditioning or fitness principles uh, during the same training cycle, the same training phase, the the same training session. Now, obviously, people that have neck surgery and back surgery aren't going to be doing uh, barbell cleans at the same time. That's not what I'm suggesting, obviously. But what I'm suggesting is that the person that, uh, that has a hurt knee uh, doesn't mean they can't do upper body work. Uh, the person that has the sprained ankle can still do some some things that can drive their fitness. And really, there's no reason to look at them separately. Uh, and I think this is a major problem in terms of uh, the the lack of teamwork. And and this is I think this is the way you should do it. This is this is how this person starts to to become the leader of the ship. The leader of the ship is not any one individual. The leader of the ship is strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to gear everything that we're doing towards that. And if that means we're doing more traditional rehab stuff in the short term, that's also fine. But, the, the, again, what I was trying to convey is that it's really all the same. The, the body responds to stresses in a very, very reliable manner. And whether that stress is being remarkable by pain and the pain has already dealt with uh, some kind of local lesions, then there are certain interventions that you do that, that, to, to change that. But while the interventions are going to be different for fitness and conditioning, the body is still going to respond the same way to stress and adaptation. And when we think of it like that, they're really more the same than different. What I, what I really like, and I think this is one thing that a lot of folks uh, haven't really uh, talked a lot about from the DVD. There was one slide in there. I said, if we, if we stop calling it rehab physiotherapy and we, start, and we stop calling it strength and conditioning and fitness, then if we just call it improve or restore qualities, then we take the, the professional um, designations out of the equation. And then it's not about like where you went to school and where you keep your license and what your master's degree it is. If you have a quality that is beneath industry standard, uh, you must restore it. And for the qualities that you have that are at industry standard, you improve them. 
And then it doesn't matter where you went to school anymore. It's just about analyzing the qualities, prioritizing those, uh, those qualities, improve the ones you, that have the authority to be improved, restore the ones back to minimum standard, and then you've just got a, a different way of going about business. And a lot of times, you know, there's not a competent healthcare professional. I get it. And that's really where that DVD came out of when we were working with the folks at Equinox. There's simply not competent healthcare professionals that have this train of thought. So here's a way to not screw up the individual that has this chronic pain problem um, where they're not going to access the competent healthcare professional. And then, you know what, because you're training the nervous system at the right pace and you're intervening at a movement level where the nervous system is not offended, and you might be able to make some changes in terms of the, of the painful pattern. At the same time, for the healthcare professional, that, uh, that either was familiar with functional movement systems or, or at least had no, had no concept. I think it was a fair introduction, and I certainly hope and expect that lots of people uh, had a renewed interest or a new interest in, in some of the things that Greg Cook and Lee Burton have done, and, and I hope it teased it a, a little bit in terms of showing how that system can embody this uh, training equals rehab thought process. Why do you think there is such a grey area between the rehabilitation specialist and the strength and conditioning coach? I mean, obviously it has to do something with the education they get from their schooling. So how, in your opinion, can it just be improved? Uh, well, that, that's quite a daunting task, but I think in, in traditional healthcare education, you know, they, they just teach certain pieces to this puzzle. Mm -hmm. most, most, most people that are in healthcare simply do not have mindset of what it's like to have heavy things in your hands or to have you know the your the the white lung feeling after doing certain things i mean you know what is what is true one that he has engaged in high level uh athletic endeavors of which i this silly endurance you know business you know, oh no i'm an athlete and they do triathlon but the the this is uh it's just not what's what's considered and it's just a different thought process when we look at the best strength and conditioning programs in the history of ever out of the when they had like injuries, not I'm, the time there was rehab in, in those types of, of genres was if it was surgery. Uh, they just changed volume, they changed intensity, they eliminated exercises, and after a while, the went away. When they, they, they instead of trying to fix things, they they were able to uh, uh, work around them or ignore them, or as Coach Boyle says, if it hurts, don't do it. This is just not how healthcare is taught, and it. It's a, it's it's a, just a very dogma based education process, and uh, and at the same time, you know, strength and conditioning is also very dogma based in ways in terms of where uh, it's all about uh, capacity, it's all about fit, it's all about quantity, more, more, more. There's not as much of a uh, of a of an of an earnest uh, view of of the quality of of how we're of engaging in speed and power and, and fitness training. Charlie, you, you really um, brought to light this idea of joint centration and redefining the core. Could you just go over that for the listeners? Well, well joint, joint centration is a term that comes out of the uh, dynamic neuro stabilization uh, methodology, which, uh, which comes out of Prague and, and Pavel Kolaj, etc. And, and in a nutshell, it, it's, not, it's not necessary to, to Prague. Uh, there's many, many other ways to describe Shirley Sarman calls it path of instantaneous center of rotation. There's lots of, um, of, of verbiages out of, out of the PNF world that uh, so describe this joint centration principle, where it's really a, a, a specific mechanically viewed joint position that has equal traction of agonists and antagonists around the joint. It has equal efficiency of, of uh, stabilizers and mobilizers around the joint. And really, it's, it's, a, it's an expression of the right muscles doing the right things. There's key muscles in our stabilizers, tonic muscles, key muscles that should be phased. Now, this can change depending on the body's position, um, the, the fixed points that are available, or the pattern. But there is an ideal, and there's a range of that ideal. Concentration position is also based on the reliable positions that we see in babies that uh, Developing from months zero through fourteen and, and older, the neurodevelopmental process. So, what does all that have to do? Like, what do I care about how a baby is moving? I'm trying to I'm trying to clean wheels. 
but the, the, the evidence is, is very empirical in that if baby does not have these key positions of joint centration, then unfortunately baby probably has uh, developmental delays or even worse neurological disease. And what is the key link? Is that key link is that joint position will drive the nervous system in baby to go through this neurodevelopmental catalog. Now we're already vertical based on our DNA as adults, but we're finding that if you mimic training positions that have the joint centration positions that you see in the babies, this begins to unlock the flexibility, strength, and speed quality, painful uh, qualities, nervous system preparedness qualities that allow for tremendous restoration or improvement of all of our of all our movement and qualities. So this whole joint centration business is based on this neurodevelopmental perspective and, and using babies uh, and the positions that we know if they develop normally. We also know when looking back, and this is some of what, at least in my role, what we look at at Nike, is when, when you look at the fastest and strongest humans on Earth, they have the exact joint positions. And it's, and it's very exciting to start to put this together where in, in key methodologies it explains when you have that joint position, the proprioceptive uptake at the joint level driving the, the nervous system. And lots of times you can make very, very quick changes or very, very quick improvements uh, when, you, when you tweak these, these key joint positions uh, in terms of concentration. It's an evenness. It's where there's maximal congruency and maximal path load-bearing around the maximal uh, passive load-bearing in a healthy way around the joint, then you can load it up. And, and uh, if you load it up, you can get the same amount of work with long time. And if you can do that, you're going to be prepared when you go into your special skills training. Or you can just go home and do other business yet that, that you have to do. So it's, there's, there's a lot of money in this joint centration uh, business, a lot of soft probably very difficult to ever prove, uh, but it can empirically, you can run faster, move freer, or, or stronger when you do it in this position, then there's got to be some. Charlie, you recently did a new uh, DVD project with Joel Jameson and Patrick War. Can you just get into that for the listeners? Yeah, there was uh, some time ago, Patrick, Joel, and I uh, each took um, about uh, roughly an hour uh, uh, for, for two lectures, so two, two hours each, and we went through the day just talking about how uh, we look at more to the right, maybe a little bit less rehab, but obviously my messages uh, were really tied to both embodying that whole training equals rehab principle and really putting together the thought process towards using uh, movement and preparedness. Uh, I touched a ver a very, very briefly on the sensory systems, but how does all this come together? Because the, one, the, the ultimate target to the training system is the brain. And we talk about you know having great cardiovascular fitness, great limit strength, great strength endurance, et cetera, et cetera. All of these adaptations are modulated on how the brain um, starts to, to deal with hormones and neurotransmitters, uh, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's really what the DVD was talking about in terms of um, the first, the first uh, section that I talked about was that movement, uh, preparedness, and, and sensory systems, uh, thought processes. It was really an introduction uh, to, to these different levels of intervention. Obviously, my, my gimmick is, is the movement. That, that's uh, probably what I do best, uh, where Joel talked about preparedness, um, Patrick did as well. And then my second talk uh, to finish up was just taking a couple people out of the crowd and just demonstrating how the functional movement system can work. It was interesting where uh, the two folks that we used were fairly, you know, not, not there was no magic. It, was, it wasn't terribly successful. And, but, but it demonstrated, number one, maybe why you shouldn't be using the functional movement system for someone in pain. It just won't make sense. And then someone else who I think was a former Olympic athlete from Bulgaria, he, uh, you know, where if you've got like really dominant mobility restrictions, you will not have this proprioceptive uptake in terms of this joint centration, and they probably potentially need to be up on the table to, to restore some of the mobility or use some techniques that maybe take a little bit of a more of a hunt and peck approach. So it's really this whole thought process uh, uh, intervention for, for somebody that watches the DVD, but ultimately there's tons of stuff, uh, science and, and, and specific interventions that, that all three of us talk about, and 
you know, the gimmick was uh, how, how to make a monster, and, and uh, that's something that I think I, co- I didn't coin it, but I, the first time I said it was a couple summers ago at, uh, at Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman's. And okay, well, this is this is what it takes. This is this is part of the thought process on how you can do more with less. Mm. And if you can refine your approaches and start to evaluate, prioritize these qualities, and start to think, okay, it's not just being really, really strong. It's not just being able to go forever. How do you tap into the nervous system and start to you know, get some of these magical changes very, very quickly? Then you have a monster, particularly in an, in an individual who has a, a value for low body weight while they're training. Um, if we're not talking about mass sports, you can really be very, very strong and fast and, and have be very, very lean. Um, and, and it was really a, a, a exciting for me to be able to hear about hear, hear Patrick and Joel because uh, these are two folks that I think very, very highly of regardless. In that presentation, Charlie, many times you kept saying, I'm an FMS guy or, or you know, you're saying my, my movement principles are based off FMS. That's where I come from. Why, yeah. do you, why do you think so many people are kind of, why do you think they criticize the FMS so much? Well, a, a couple of reasons. First and foremost, I don't think, I think, you know, when, when you're in our profession, you're probably some level of an ass kicker. And ass kickers don't typically like to be followers or do what someone else says. I'm, I'm interested in winning. Mm-hmm. And if somebody has something that is useful to me, uh, I learned in the Marine Corps uh, during my time there that sometimes being a good leader is being a good follower. And, and for me, uh, Gray Cook has that information, Lee Burton has that information for me, and I'm very, very comfortable championing it. And I'm also very, very comfortable uh, seeing it for what it is and where I can use my own uh, particular uh, skills or exploits to make it, make it my own. And I think it's set up to do that, but that goes into my second point. I'm not sure it's always presented like that, and if it is presented like that, because I just said it was, um, I'm not sure people always are able to accept that. I think people want cookbook. They want to be told exactly what to do, and the criticism comes because, again, I will say that I think it's presented very soft sometimes. I don't think people, I don't think some of the folks that present it all the time are, are explaining, this is just a system. You can do whatever you want. This is just your report card. Here's some suggestions, but nobody said you had to do a great cook's way. And, and then they, they see this, it gets into the hands of these wombats, these mad scientists, uh, trainers, who are trying to become physical therapists in a weekend course. And this is completely unacceptable. So where those criticisms were, like you're just looking at all this, this like movement and all this specific stuff and you forgot to get strong, I think they're absolutely right in, in a lot of cases. And I think that criticism is not fair because, but at the same time, if that's how they were exposed, you know, then, then it's, it's almost like both, both sides are somewhat culpable, and in, in, in this is where when I have my opinion to, uh, when I have my, an, an opportunity, rather, to, to express my, you know, where I'm, you know, how I'm using it, why I'm using it, then, then I want to always make sure that, that folks are aware that, look, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to do it the same way I do it. You don't have to do it the same way Greg Cook does it. But I'll tell you what, what do you have? That honors the neurodevelopmental perspective, pain and motor control, the high threshold strategy, and regional interdependence. What is your system that, that can bounce off of those four principles? And I'm not sure what else there is, and that's why I use it. But again, I have I understand where this criticism comes from. One of it comes from just being you know, people just being jerks, and they don't want to do what someone else does. But I'll tell you what, people think they're really good at what they do until they find out someone else can do it better. Mm-hmm. And, but, but at the same time, I think a lot of the criticism is, is somewhat warranted because it, it's not taught the way that it's actually uh, intended to be. And for whatever reasons, that's fine. I know when I get an opportunity under my own banner, when I work for Gray and Lee, I say it the way that the, the level one and level two manual is supposed to be said, and there is no deviation. Uh, I'm not, I, I think people just see what they, they see it from afar, and they, they, uh, they, they want to make it what, it what they think it should be, or what, and, and, and because there's no cookbook to it, and people are so hungry for that cookbook, then it becomes very, very frustrating and, and very critical. There is no cookbook. It, there, it doesn't work that way. And, uh, and I think when, when, when you try to crunch the cookbook into it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating. Because mm-hmm. I, I find an awful lot of time myself that uh, when I talk to people who have certain arguments with the FMS, I always find that their arguments are based on very false assumptions, which makes their arguments invalid then. But I think an- another thing that kind of gets to those people is they see that the bands and the FMS kit and they see like the bands are whatever, $40 and the kit's $200 and they think that it's all a gimmick. And 
when they kind of see it from that perspective, it's a shame as well because the actual information, as you know, is, is brilliant from, as you said, the newer development perspective, pain and mold control, high threshold strategy and regional interdependence. So it's just a shame then that it kind of, those people throw the baby out with the bathwater then. So. Well, you know what it is? And I want to be fair to those people where maybe those false assumptions are, are based off credible resources. And that and you have to start there because I believe that. I, I think that's that's some, it is it is conveyed very often soft. And, and I don't care for that. And that's okay because there's, there's something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but at the same time, if those false assumptions are then explained, okay, listen, Robbie, that's not exactly how it works. It works like this. And then they still aren't buying it. Then it becomes then it becomes a problem. Then then because the functional everybody it's like it's like more those same people that sometimes that are criticizing the functional movement screen and the functional movement system they're actually using most of the principles anyway. Yeah. No, yeah. Make up your own seven moves. Go go make your own little. What do you have that's based as an injury predictor? And then what do you have that's bouncing off a methodology that that is that has those four key principles. Well, because I, I like this too in in the in the strength and motion DVD where you said your baseline should be body weight, minimum cue, and modified. So at least you gave a principle behind what should be a baseline minimum competency. You know, before you before you start to sh- you know to, to promote FMS. So even if you're even you were saying even if you don't want to use FMS, that really should be what should be in your movement standard. Yeah, that that was that was part of the movement piece in my first lecture where. Again, I, again, I'm representing myself. It's not a, a certification course. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm saying things that are not necessarily in the level one manual, not because I don't agree with the level one manual. Uh, it's because I'm doing my own thing and trying to, to, to uh, in my righteous uh, ways, try to right the wrongs of, of, of how people are viewing this thing. But I want to be able to demonstrate that, okay, here's, here's, here's the, the, the blueprint to this particular how. Let me go back and just show you the blueprints in general. How do you make your own blueprints? Because if you want a different type of house than, than what this movement screen does, here's how you can come up with one that can, that can at least stand toe-to-toe. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure anybody's been able to do that quite yet. Charlie, you, you mentioned there in our previous section high threshold strategy and regional interdependence. Can you just start with high threshold strategy and just explain what this is? Uh, high threshold strategy comes out of... Uh, um, yeah, some of the thought processes out of Queensland and and uh, and uh, I'm Bergman or uh, and and some of these these thought processes in terms of um, in the presence of pain there is a shift or a delay in some of the deep stabilization muscles. This is where we learn from the transverse abdominis, multifidus, pelvic floor, deep neck flexor, literature, etc. So in uh, what what can happen is that after this pain is no longer perceived, whether it's no whether it wasn't pathological first place or or if the body has healed and the, the body no longer perceives a, a threat in that it that it identifies as no exception uh, there may still be this shift away from deep stabilization timing and what will happen is that the global or phasic muscles will be overriding and be more dominant in terms of a timing and motor control than the tonic muscles so the tonic muscles aren't off very often like we do activation exercises because muscle so-and-so is off. Muscle is off, and they're off when you're dead. Okay, but there's a timing piece, and when this timing piece maintains, this is what we call the high-threshold strategy, where we're using our global basic muscles uh, to be stabilized, and oftentimes this high-threshold strategy is necessary. You, it's not always a bad thing. It's a bad thing when you don't need it. You shouldn't have to be using a high-threshold strategy to do something like walk. Uh, but but if you've got big wheels on your back, then of course you need a high threshold strategy and use your phasic muscles to help stabilize the system. But the original literature and the original explanation came from after pain left the group, the building. And again, pain is a perception. We know this, whether it was pathological or not, uh, it is not it is not reliable. We also know that from our pain and motor control literature. But once pain and nociception has left the building you may still see this compensated, protective nature of muscle activation patterns. And this is, this is what would be called the high-threshold strategy. But at the same time, it, it can, I, I believe it can also be developed. I think other folks start to take the principle and also see that it can be uh, maintained from stupid training. And if you're constantly overtrained or constantly bracing and always using a hard-style technique in all of your training, you can then remodel your motor control. It can become adapted and have the same high-threshold strategy. Because if you brace all the time and begin your volitional movement with a heavy brace in terms of, let's say, using your lats, 
um, to, to stabilize the spine, which is not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you can't demonstrate the opposite uh, soft style, soft technique. So if you continually always brace or continually always train in, a, in an overtrained environment, meaning your body is perceiving threat, it's just not registering as pain, you'll, be, you'll go into these compensated patterns of the high threshold strategy. And this is, uh, in, in a nutshell, how you get it can be these different ways, but it's basically where the phasic muscles are overriding the timing of the, of the deep stabilizing tonic muscles. And how would we go about fixing that, Charlie? Ah, this is up to this is for expert testimony. This is uh, just like what we just talked about with the functional movement system. There's many, many ways to fix it, but uh, ideally, um, you have to use whatever facilitated technique is required. Meaning, in terms of manual therapy, needles, etc. In terms of remodeling, whether we need to downregulate some of the tone in the phasic muscles or upregulate tone in the tonic muscles. That's again, everybody does, anybody can do or good at, or maybe it's not even manual therapy. Maybe it's some kind of neurological technique. Something, some of the things that we see in, in DNS. How do you restore that shift? But ideally, our motor control training must be in patterns where we cannot muscle the movement. We we have to be able to do it correctly uh, in terms of when you if you if you if you choose a movement that can be done hard style or soft, then this is not the option. We have to choose motor control choices to remodel the pattern that can only be done soft mm. and. And there's there's a, there's a, some of the things that come to mind, some of the segmental rolling positions, some of our quadruped positions where the spine is rotating around a femur or a fixed humerus, some of our Indian club technique, some of our softer versions of the Turkish getup, uh, where uh, we're, we're going to see movements that maybe are not always um, biomechanically ideal in the vertical, but they will be very biomechanically successful um, in some of the, the lower positions and some of the less mature positions where the spine will have its levels of rotation, uh, but if it has this rotation with deep stabilization, it's very appropriate and safe, and then you can quote-unquote break the high-threshold strategy. Charlie, you said something <clears throat> when I watched Strength in Motion about regional interdependence, and, and uh, when you said it, I was, it was kind of an aha moment for me. Because when I think regional interdependence, and, and I think anyone listening to this, they, they kind of just think regional interdependence in terms of joints. So if my neck is dysfunctional, it can lead to knee pain. And e even, even that itself for some therapists is, is a bit out there. But you also said it affects other systems. So like even like an, you know, like the organ can affect this. So like biochemical issues can affect biomechanical issues, psychosocial. And you were saying regional interdependence isn't just within one system. It's system to system. So when you said that, it was a real... You know, I was like, you know, I, I, can't, I can't believe it. Like, I, I, I know, I've known it myself, but it was just the way you put it so simplistically. It was just garbage in one system is garbage out in another. So can you just explain that as well? That's absolutely correct. And, and when we go back to 2007, when Robert Weiner uh, originally published the principles of regional interdependence in and it was either physical therapy or journal of sport physical therapy, it was what you were describing. You, this musculoskeletal integration, this joint-by-joint uh, up to uh, and that obviously that's Coach Boyle and Gray Cook. Uh, I'm not even sure Wayner would know who those guys were if he ran them over. But uh, in, in the in the in the North American physical therapy world, is easily researched. It's easily defensible, and that's what they were talking about. Take those principles and continue to say, okay, well, if we have if we respect that, not a biomechanical system but it's a neurologically mediated system, it's a central nervous system mediated uh, uh, and then ultimately whatever you, whatever inputs you put into the, to the brain, you can spit out uh, and anywhere else. And if we have certain you know, gastrointestinal struggles, we, we believe that this can change our neuromuscular or biomechanical system. And if you have struggles with the limbic system, this will change uh, your hormonal system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And everything comes out in the wash. Now, Everybody probably has a expertise on how they're going to measure, quote-unquote, the system. But we must, must respect that anything can correct anything. Uh, and it, when, when you look at it from the, from the autonomic nervous from the central nervous system, it, there's so many different examples of what can, what can uh, um, affect what. But ultimately, if we, if we change our thought process into analyzing the locomotor system, then maybe we can say that it's not the musculoskeletal system. The locomotor system, how we move, can be impacted by any number of different uh, systems. 
different inputs and, and responses. And if you continue to have aberrant inputs and aberrant adaptations, then it's going to show up in the wash. And if you constantly look at movement, then your movement is going to start to look poor. And, uh, and, and it, maybe it has nothing to do with, with poor training choices. It has to do with other ancillary inputs. This is everything matters. Everything matters. That's, that's to me what regional independence means. I remember hearing a, a, an old podcast with, with Joel Jameson and a friend of mine, Cedric, and, and they were actually talking about the functional movement screen. And I think this was before Joel really knew anything about the functional movement screen. You know, and he wasn't, he didn't seem to be a big, huge proponent of it. Since he's met you, has, has his understanding changed? Has he started to appreciate what it stands for? I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let Joel speak for himself, but I certainly, I don't think we're gonna be talking on the phone and and uh, and, and making big DVDs together if he didn't have a, a mutual respect. Yeah, what yeah. Joel is that he he embodies the system. I'm not. I don't. I don't think he's nailing you know numbers on everybody in terms of the, the functional movement screen. But I do think he embodies the functional movement system. He has a team. Uh, he has people ready to refer folks out to work on movement. And Joel uses this this thought process of selecting movements that are based off competency. And he doesn't have this this wild you know catalog and wild. The variance of all these different exercises that then requires more pattern competency if you're going to pick more things that you want to develop capacity out of. Mm-hmm. So if, if you screen, if, if he screens his guys, whatever using whatever thought process that he chooses to use, he's going to pick movements to drive the metabolic where the person can have quote unquote good form. So um, I think he truly. Um, probably, you know, he probably does have a, uh, a different outlook on it. At the same time, he probably had the same outlook, and just like everybody else, probably had some misinformation or you know chose to, to believe certain things from from unfortunately credible resources. And uh, and but I definitely think he's he's on board with the thought process. And again, from me, I'm not telling you you have to use those. You can pick your own seven moves, and I think that's probably what Joel is doing figuratively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There seems to be a, a big talk lately, Charlie, about the postular restoration shoot and this idea of asymmetry. And, and I heard about PRI even two or three years ago, but it's kind of lately now a lot of people seem to get into it, like Coach Boyle is starting to speak about it. And, and I think a lot of people are saying, you know, PRI is, you know, saying that we're meant to be asymmetrical. And then people are saying, well, this clashes with the FMS philosophy, which means we're meant to be symmetrical, which I actually think is an oversimplification. The FMS just says we don't have to be, they don't want us grossly out of proportion. There's still there's still a bit of a, of a buffer zone there, right? But what's your take on PRI? Well, here's a, here's a couple bullet points. Number one, I'm not formally trained in PRI. So I can't comment. What I can say is that a lot of people that I really respect, like Neil Rampey and Eric Cressy and Mike Robinson, really you know, use this stuff. And, and um, you know, Neil Rampey with the Arizona Diamondback, he talked my list. The PRI... DNS, then, then I believe him. That being said, um, this um, there's a lot of PRI folks that find gravity, in my opinion, with PRI because it does have this apparent clash with the FMS, and it doesn't have an apparent clash. And you see my tone will change a little bit because I get very frustrated. Any um, kind of message that provides this false spot, uh, no, there is an enormous range of asymmetries in the FMS that is considered uh, allowable. And it is normal to have asymmetries. They are undeniable. And there is an enormous range on five out of movements that allow you to be ridiculously asymmetrical. And you may still score symmetrical twos, symmetrical threes, at which point you go into training. And if that asymmetry really does matter, it'll come out in your training because you're still going to, you're not going to let one, you know, do a a, a straight on one side where to a 60-degree angle, and yet the other side is going over. You see that asymmetry does matter. So the, uh, the this notion that, that asymmetries are normal and natural is absolutely correct. But I will tell you this, independent of the commercial model of FMS and independent of the commercial model of PMI, the independent literature is crystal clear. It has nothing to do with selling these, these continuing education programs. The independent literature is crystal clear that the Number two predictor of injury is right left symmetry, and that doesn't. You know, there's, there's, this has nothing to do with any of these systems. Uh, but what it does have to do with what you just said: gross asymmetries. Mm-hmm. And this is where it becomes very, very frustrating. Um, and at the same time, what I also frustrate PRI or other systems is that well, just about anybody 
write a check and go in. And those wombat, you know, mad scientist trainers, uh, non-healthcare professionals, they, they're, they're, they, they get to go to this course and somehow get these very, very powerful, very, very good, probably uh, very, very successful techniques, and then they, they're going to try to become in a two-day course. Uh, four two-day courses. I don't think you're going to be able to do plan C, plan D, and plan E. It's not a commentary on the quality of the information. I'm sure it's good because Neil says it's good. But what, they're, what you cannot possibly learn is what do you do when it doesn't work? Because nothing works all the time. It's a method. PRI is, 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 is a systematic approach to use certain techniques. Very, very different than FMS, which is just a systematic approach. You can use whatever technique you want. I'll tell you, if you only live off one you're not going to be 100%, you, or you, and you won't be, you'll be further away from 100%. Nobody's going to be 100%. If you use a systematic approach and then use whatever method that you want, then you'll, you'll be far, far nailing things because no one, no one method, no one technique is going to nail everything. So, you know, a little bit of negative based off my opinion and my perception. Um, and I get very, very frustrated with other commercial models that are beacons for these people that either don't want to refer out, that had somebody come up to me at a course the other day, and it wasn't about PR. Another course, and I'm like, it sounds like to me you just you just want to do it all on your own. You don't want to you don't want to work in a team. He's like, well, yeah, I'm 30 years old. I just bought a house. I said, no problem. Go sit down, dude. And and this is this is not it. You know, they, 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 these these beacons for strength and conditioning professionals professionals to learn this corrective exercise magic. How about getting people in shape? You know, how about you know, developing work capacity? Because when you develop work capacity, we already talked about before, you're, you're, you're intervening at the same nervous system that, that, that then changes joint centration. But if you, ha if you don't have work capacity, you can fix anything. You could have all these great directive skills and all this brilliant DNS stuff, and you're doing it, and all of a sudden you can see this miraculous change in a short period of time. If you don't have work capacity, your tolerance uh, to fatigue is obviously very, very poor, and you will then denigrate your movement patterns and Concentration shift to passive stability patterns. You're going to be gassed and, and jacked up just as just as much. I'm just really much, very much a proponent of you know the teamwork, division of labor, where the fitness folks work on fitness. You know the other folks maybe aren't as good as at fitness. They work on the the, the voodoo and the and the, the correctness and the magic. And remember, voodoo and magic is just what someone else doesn't understand. So I don't think you that stuff in a two-day course. That's very frustrating, but you know, we got off a little bit on the asymmetries. Asymmetries are normal. You, know, you, can, you can have a good two and a bad two. There'll be a two, and you have every warranty of a risk, risk uh, assessment that if you're going to throw big wheels over your head, you shouldn't have a problem. That doesn't mean you won't. Risk doesn't mean it hits. It means it's a risk. So very frustrating. People interpret that firepower uh, to denigrate the FMS because they're completely wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because... When I when I you know I, I heard this kind of oh PRI is the opposite of FMS because FMS saying we have to be perfectly symmetrical I was like no it's not like I mean as you said you could have a very clear two and a kind of oh it's just about a two but there's still an asymmetry there but you're still s symmetrical by the FMS standards I mean asymmetry as you said is a normal thing it's just when it's grossly out of proportion there's a problem. Well, uh, well yeah, like why told you why do you think this well so and so said it I said okay well you went to the wrong course I apologize you know and then. <laughs> you know, I, they're wrong. There's you. You could have. You know, it, it's hard to get a one in the FMS in a lot of movements. You could have a, a a really really good two where you're not even sure if it's a two or a three on something like the hurdle step, and then you can look absolutely retarded with the other leg, and it's still a two. You're allowed to have these asymmetries. Now that just that 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 environment that I just described that'll probably show up in your training, okay? Mm -hmm. But you're still looking. This, the move the functional movement screen is just this 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 checkpoint. Before you get into training, it's not this diagnostic. Okay, I have to, I have to do this. What it is, it's telling you, hey, this might not be an idea to do this. Let make sure you know what you're getting into, and and that's uh, that's that's all it is. I've made major uh, asymmetries, but uh, again, people just want they they want to they don't like that somebody you know is making a lot of money off of it. Like that, it, it appears that that this kit you know is overpriced. Whatever all their these stupid little criticisms are. For reasons why not to be the best, and if that's what they want, out, you say this before the JV team plays on Thursdays. Uh, you know, you can be a pretty good JV player. That, that, that's fine. But if you, if this is this is the system that I believe, if you want to be on the varsity, Charlie. An another thing that's been very big the last two years, and you're a huge, huge proponent of, is, is DNS. Can you just get into DNS for us? Well, we talked about 
terms of joint centration, it's, it's developmental kinesiology, developmental perspective, and uh, the, the methods in this, in, in what I just described, a little bit of the backdrop, uh, lots of these folks like Makla Voita and Makola, Gianda, these were neurological pediatricians, and they were treating young, young children that had neurological disease, and basically it's using these, these neurological of these particular positions uh, and these particular joint positions that um, the developmental perspective to make very, very quick changes in the nervous system's control of tonic and phasic muscles. So I know we talked you know, a lot about it before. It's just a commercial model, just like anything else. And, and, I, and when, uh, I think commercial models are the ones that give you, you know, the backdrop, the system. Uh, and I would use DNS methods uh, after use the functional movement screen or selective functional movement assessment to just guide me on you know, where, where the report card is. And Charlie, with, with, with regards to, to, to DNS, because I know Coach Boyle said this, what could a strength and conditioning coach take away from DNS? The, uh, I think maybe the four principles um, that, that I think are very applicable to, to you know, taking all this you know, neurodevelopmental out of the equation. Number one, the ideal breathing pattern. The ideal pattern is one where the umbilicus drops it down and forward. So it's not just getting fat. It's actually a very circumferential breathing pattern. And remember I said like the strongest and fastest people in the world are doing these things. And the, uh, the, when you look at a power, when you particular sprinters, they have this roundness. When you look at bolt, you know, you, you, you see like this almost very, very soft, very, very low body fat. But these, they're not looking like bodybuilders. And that breathing pattern where the ribs are descended allows for the proper fixed point around the stability in your middle back, uh, the, the thoracolumbar, so that you can move very, very uh, uh, in the upper body and in the lower body. So the first principle is ideal breathing pattern. I don't think on your back practice breathing, uh, but you to, you, you, what you can do is not allow people to breathe high into their shoulders, uh, to breathe high into their chest. Uh, you're changing things neurologically, and at the same time, the, uh, you're also minimizing some of the uh, some of the past in, in, the, in the respiratory. Uh, that's number one. Uh, n- number two, there's a, there's a there's an ideal position, uh, and, and the, uh, scapular winging is a good example. We know this is not an ideal joint position. However, if we change the position you know, before we start training muscles that think responsible for something like scapular Let's change the position. Let's change the neuromuscular environment, putting a heavy kettlebell over here, and let's make sure that those muscles are competent because they're not. Uh, we just need to change the position. So we have to have uh, what do these round muscles look like uh, in terms of around the scapula, the pelvis, uh, and the upper back. Uh, number three is fixed points. Um, the, and this is all about the joint-by-joint theory. So when Coach Boyle talks about Something has to be ideally fixed so something else can move. We talked briefly about certain muscles that have those responsibilities, but when we talk about the joint, the, the postures that we're using, uh, when we're in the vertical, the only fixed points that we have uh, with, with, the, with the outside world or what we're holding onto with our hands. But if we get lower, meaning we get on our knees, now we have a different fixed point and different things may happen. You can be on quadruped elbows. Uh, uh, elbows and feet, elbows and knees, hands and feet, hands and knees, elbows and pubic symphysis. If we change the fixed points with the ground, we can we will get a very very different motor control pattern. This is the you know, DNS it, joint. It's 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 the exact same thought process. It's the exact same principles. DNS delves more neurological sequelae of that. Coach Boyle's talking about the biomechanical sequelae. It's all the same. Mm. And the inner core. Well, we talked about those muscles that in the high threshold strategy. Whereas baby does not have a, uh, a social um, mechanism that has changed their motor control or they don't have disease that changes this tonic and phasic relationships in terms of we value all the muscles of the core. Uh, there's just a timing piece and, and an option on which to be hard style. So the inner core would be the diaphragm, pelvic floor, multifidus, transverse abdominis, and deep net flexors. So these are... Uh, this is also the principle. So what do you have in your training that is making sure you have this... Idea? Between hard style and soft, 
There's nothing wrong with hard style. As you well know, I champion the methods of Pablo Sassoli very, very highly. They just need to be an option. And I would tell you for every hard style double kettlebell press, there's a double uh, Indian club, uh, more fast and loose, you know, to kind of counter this, this nervous system conditioning. So those are the four pieces to DNS that I think are practical. And you know what? Just like I said before, most people are already doing them. It's not this, this mysterious thing. The method the, the fly on the wall that watches someone do re, does reflex locomotion, they're like, what the hell is this? This is ridiculous. It's, it, it, and, and, and that's fine if you don't know what it is. Remember, magic is just what someone else doesn't understand. But you're embodying uh, this pattern, these, these key roundness of, of phasic muscles. And when they're round, that deep stabilization underneath, they're not going to be hollow like what you see in scapular winging. Um, the joint-by-joint joint completely embodied in DNS. And then lastly, um, the, the, the value for this tonic and stabilizing muscle systems in terms of the inner core, this is what happens first. Once you can stabilize your spine mentally, then everything else is free to drive and punch and kick and jump and run fast and lift things. Um, you want phasic muscles to be driving your movement, not to be stabilizing and controlling it. Charlie, breathing. This breathing is just something that everyone's talking about. And some people keep championing breathing while other people seem to get frustrated, like they don't understand what do you mean with breathing, what do I do? Can you just speak about breathing and also the autonomic nervous system and how they tie into each other? One of the, uh, at least for, for me right now, the, uh, um, the, two, the two windows into the autonomic nervous system that are uncontrollable based on specific stressors is the breathing pattern and so if you get scared, you're going to do something, and you cannot control this. If you're surprised, or if you have too, uh, um, if your body is becoming overloaded with certain stressors, your breathing pattern and your eye movement will change. So how do we start to take advantage of that? Because I'm very interested in taking advantage of reflexive pattern. The breathing pattern uh, is one that will then, if you can override it and start to change the breathing pattern. Well, Charlie, that sounds like meditation. That's exactly right. DNA very has you know, very uh, sim much similarities to to to, to, to meditation. The uh, they can then begin to normalize the nervous system. Uh, now, how exactly does that does that happen? Well, there's baroreceptors. Um, there's the, the phrenic nerve that innervates the diaphragm that has a very close association to cranial nerves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's so many different ways that that actually happens. Now, it it also doubles postural stabilizer like about. So think about like for folks that and, and I have finished because it, it explains why certain people are ridiculously strong and so that when you breathe low into your belt then you uh, you all automatically how you can uh, bench press more. So that, why why can you do that? Well because you shifted threat away from the nervous system um, from those from this myriad of neurological but also now you have deep stabilization of your spine and your phasic muscles are available to be phasic. So if you breathe high, you have to use other muscles to stabilize because you hit the fixed point of the diaphragm, and now your thoracic spine becomes stiff. The joints may move, but neurologically they're not moving. Mobility is the nervous system's control of a system on, uh, that is uninfluenced. And then your pelvis will change its position to become stable simply because you do not breathe this ideal pattern. And this ideal pattern sets off this spider-like spine, pelvis, and hip, and allows you to have this neurological e-break off, so you can use phasic muscles to drive the body. That's where the breathing pattern. That's what you're getting after. Now, how, if someone is not capable of breathing, then again, this is expert testimony um, on a, uh, on how you it, it change. But remember, when I say they can't breathe, it's not like you can't. This has nothing to do with air exchange. This is to do with a, 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 a stereotype. Of what your body appears doing um, in in these uh, in this in this uh, exercise, not about air exchange. That's a that's a very confusing thing. That maybe there's a difference between breathing and respiration. Everybody's everybody is respirating um, unless they're breathing. Said in the medulla oblongata is not, which is a good way to kill someone if you want to hit them in the back of the head. Mm. But but that's uh, yeah, that, that's there's a difference between breathing and respiration. Of course, it's semantics, but time look at look at sprinters they don't look skinny all the time and uh, you look strong and fast people they, sometimes they look soft in their um, they don't they're not overtoned in their obliques rectus abdominis um, erectors etc this breathing pattern stuff so. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
Charlie, just last one or two questions before we wrap it up. Just with regards to joint centration again, I had a good question with regards to powerlifters and bench pressing. And powerlifters seem to get an, an awful lot of, uh, like they do get an awful lot of extension thoracically, but also in the lumbar area. Do you think that that is going against this joint centration? Do you think they're actually losing strength due, due to that? Theoretically, yes, they're losing strength. But remember, there's a big difference between bench pressing as a power lifter and bench pressing for athletic uh, theoretically, if you lose the, the goal of the, the goal of competitive bench pressing is to put more wheels on the bar and win. So whatever strategy required, you do that. And if that means you have a hurt back, that's up for you to decide. Um, I one of the things I'm pretty good at in the bench press is I have a pretty big yards. Uh, it 100% is in complete violation of everything that I'm talking about in training or rehabilitating an athlete or or any individual. But I also know that I might take oh, as much as two to two and a half inches my bench press stroke. So now if I don't have to bench the bar the bar as far, I probably put more wheels on it. And then I'm making a decision as to why that may or may not be useful. Uh, now when you look at some of these young ladies that can bench the mounts or even guys that have rainbow like curve of extension throughout their whole back, this is fine. This is is a centrated position and they're managing fixed points. It's part of what, what be, being an elite bench presser is about. But if you do not have this joint are you, you see, there's a difference between being strong and, and hitting a big lift. Um, there's a difference between uh, destroying a competition lift and owning uh, integrity in the same lift. So there's, there's different reasons why you would do different things. So powerlifting is a competition. The rules of competition are not what I'm talking about in general training. Uh, they're, they're there's a very clear line to, 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 do, to, to what, is, what you would determine to be successful and how out your risks and rewards and it becomes very very challenging sometimes in a quadrant four sport like powerlifting where then your general training you know, may or may not change control for your competition so that's it's again that's that's just like the fms stuff explain see what they want to see or or only talk about what they understand there's when you talk about these joint centration positions that's not what you're doing in your competitive sport and it's General training improves general skills, and then you put more horsepower and better power to your special technique. Now, as coaches, we must make sure that if we are concentration, it cannot change negatively the motor control of the sport. But this doesn't. This is what people think it happens because they don't want to do what someone else says to do. Uh, but but I, that, that's that's fine. But the bench press is an interesting example because obviously it's very effective of these joint centration principles. And the same question then, you, uh, you've probably. Uh, you were going to roll your eyes at this one, but the, the the packed neck, and you're becoming a huge proponent of this neutral cervical spine, and, and, and really goes against what a lot of people have been taught in squatting and, and Olympic lifting. Yeah, well, that's okay because if uh, again, if if you are, uh, I, I don't that you see it as much in powerlifting, you'll see some. And when we saw um, uh, Doug Furness would really throw his neck back with hundred thousand pounds up on his back, but when you look at these, uh, you know, powerlifters, their neck is is, is fairly neutral. Um, in Olympic lifting, they don't because the Olympic lifting, you know, in order to get it to that very, very deep catch, you know, we're using an anterior shifted environment, so you're going to throw more of your body forward to be centrated underneath your elevated heels, which throw you forward. Mm. So if that's what it takes to win your competition, then you do it. Nobody said not to do that. I'm talking about And I'm very excited. Uh, I found maybe you want to, uh, you can post it along with this podcast, the old timers. In their training lifts, they had this neutral spine. And then in competition lifts, they use a different technique. So this is, uh, I, I don't know. Like if, if, you look, if you look at someone that doesn't have an athletic and they live very much on the left, they're used to fixing things that are overloaded, then they would be like, why in the world would you ever do that? And um, this is fine, but this is how we have sore backs. This Loss of centration and overuse injuries anywhere in our body. Loss of centration in one part, anywhere else. So, uh, it's my eyes. It's, it's, I'm, I'm very comfortable, and I know when I teach it. See, I think a lot of times, too, people get bits and pieces of my message or any other message, and then they take it for what they think it is. And I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, when I, let me show you, dude. And then you still want to do it, then it's like, whatever, football, because. It's not worth. It's not worth. Uh, it's not arguing. But you simply you cannot get into your posterior chain if you have an extension. And there's so there's about nine or ten different reasons 
you can't you can't establish that reading pattern. Um, you're 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 eliciting uh, primitive reflexes that are protective and autonomic red lines. This is just there's so many reasons as to why you should keep a neutral neck um, with a hip. Just last question here, Charlie. With regards to your, your speaking engagements, are you, you're hoping to come to Europe next year, are you? Well, yeah. You know what? Maybe uh, when we're done talking here, we'll we'll start to actually uh, figure out a date. You know, my, my life is, is a roller coaster, and uh, um, I know we talked about it before. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think uh, at some point in the uh, in the, during uh, 2013 that uh, we'll be over there, and, and and we'll see if we can have a good time and show people how why they you know, why I think neutral neck in general physical preparedness <laughs> all right well charlie thanks a million for your time that's an, an hour of you know as great information as i thought it would be and uh, just for anyone listening guys as always about the podcast thanks for downloading the podcast and listening to them and i'll speak to you soon and take care